So I want to open with a bit of an illustration to help us get our heads around today's message. Um, Many years ago, uh, my wife and I decided to buy a trampoline for our boys. And uh, we uh, got this trampoline, got delivered by courier, and it was really heavy box. I mean, it was filled with these massive aluminium poles, great big curved sections, uprights and and, uh, uh, legs and everything like that. And uh, I got it all out on the grass and uh, had to get the tools out. And, you know, it was quite the DIY enterprise. I felt like, you know, Mr. DIY hero putting this thing together. Um, Had loads and loads of bits to it. I finally got the frame all assembled. Um, And then the next bit that you have to do is you have to kind of get the big round kind of stretchy mat that's in the middle and you have to hook that onto the frame by attaching loads and loads of springs into lots of little eyelets. So around the the edge or the circumference of this stretchy mat there's lots of these uh, kind of metal holes kind of sewn into the fabric. And what you have to do is you have to get one of the springs out of the bag, the bag of many springs that came with the box, uh, and you get a spring out and you hook it into the eyelet of the, uh, the mat, and then you find the right kind of hole in the frame, and, and you work your way round the trampoline in this way. Now, at the beginning of that task, that's pretty easy. There's no problem. There's not an awful lot of tension on this thing. It's just laying on the grass, and you're lifting it up as you go, as you go around. And as you start to get towards the end, however, the tension across the, the surface of the mat of the trampoline uh, starts to get quite a lot more. Uh, and as you get into the last four or five, it gets really, really hard. And what they do is they provide you with this kind of T-shaped tool that you can lock into your hand with a hook on the end, and you have to kind of get next to the trampoline and pull it with all your might, these last few springs. And the very last spring is the hardest of all, because you're against all the tension of all the other springs, and so you're having to pull really, really hard. Um, and so I finally, finally did this and got the, got the mat all nice and uh, taut and bouncy and, and stretched out, but it was very, very difficult. Um, Now, my experience of hauling this trampoline together and stretching out the bouncy mat um, gave me a powerful illustration of the nature of God that I'd like to to share with us this morning. The nature of God has many facets to it. He has many aspects to his character. Uh, And in fact, if you consider each of the, the, the little eyelets around the edge of a trampoline, actually each one of those could represent something of the character of God. Uh, they really could. And so for our grasp of God to be strong and healthy and bouncy and, and to lead us into that abundant life that Jesus promises us, we need to have our theology in a good tension. We need our spirituality be, to be stretched in all the directions that, that God is, is wanting to stretch us in. Um, and so we have to have things taut and, and tense. It's no good you plugging in a couple of springs of who you think God is and then leaving the rest of your theology lying on the grass. You have to pull all the springs out, pull it all into position, and then you've got something uh, that's going to work. Now, last week, we opened the Lord's Prayer with a message all about the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, which, of course, are our Father, aren't they? Our Father in heaven. Uh, And I brought you a message connected to our Father on the story of the parable of the prodigal son. And we worked through the the parable of the prodigal son. And and in fact, I I think I unpacked three highlight messages for you about who our Father in heaven actually is when we pray our Father. Uh, And so those three points, the key points or the key highlights from the parable of the prodigal son are, number one, our heavenly Father is absolutely delighted when we turn to him. Number two, our heavenly Father doesn't hold our wrongdoings against us. And number three, our heavenly Father wants to restore our dignity, our worth, and our value, and he wants to do it urgently. 
That was the kind of the core of last week's message. Uh, and, and, you know, you can listen, if you missed that for some reason, jump on our podcast and have a listen again. But, of course, you can also catch up on YouTube as well. We have it there too. Now, you, you, you may well have, I hope that you enjoyed last week's message and, uh, and that it impacted you and it, 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 you know, sat in your mind. But you may have come away thinking, but what about the holiness of God? Where was that in last week's message? And you'd be right to make that observation. So in a sense, what I did last week was I attached maybe a couple of springs about the fatherhood of God to one side of the spiritual trampoline. But what I want to do today is I want to create a tension against that and to, and to kind of put in some, some springs on the other side of who God is and tension that trampoline mat out and talk about his holiness. Because his holiness then comes in the very second line of the Lord's Prayer. Your name be honoured as holy. Or as uh, Rachel so well read for us so well, uh, hallowed be thy name, which is the King James Version of it. It's probably a version that we're very familiar with. So one of the things I want you to bear in mind that's in the culture of BCC as a church is that we will preach in series. It's very rare for us to just do a standalone message. We will unpack something over a series of weekends because what we want to try to do is to bring you the full trampoline, as it were, so that you are completely set up and you're accessing all the different characteristics of who God is. That's important to us to do that. And so Jesus opens the Lord's Prayer with two lines that, if you like, are kind of on opposite sides of the spiritual trampoline. He says, your na- uh, sorry, he says um, uh, our, uh, he, you should pray like this, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, and we looked at that last week, this week your name be honored as holy. So one is that he is our Father in heaven, but two is that he be honored as a holy person. If I were to try and sum up the first line of the Lord's Prayer in a single three-letter word, it would be the word dad, D-A-D. Just dad. He's our heavenly dad, isn't he? When we open the Lord's Prayer, it's our father. It's dad. We can connect with him. We, we, we can access him. But if we were to sum up the Lord's Prayer, uh, the second line of the Lord's Prayer, sorry, in a single three-letter word, it would be or, A-W-E, uh, or awesome, the longer version of that. But it would be Hold on a minute. We are talking to someone who has holiness about them. They are a holy person. Now, Jesus is a holy person who teaches us how to pray, but he's also the person who brings us our holiness. Uh, And I want to bring you an illustration of the holiness of Jesus. Um, And uh, what I've done is I've set up uh, some uh, kind of uh, object lesson just here. Uh, this This is you. Uh, this is you and your white hanky, uh, the, the white hanky of your person. Um, but what happens with us in life, uh, we kind of want to be like this. You know, we want to kind of be clean. We want to be uh, kind of good with God and with each other. But what goes on is that uh, we actually have things that happen with us. Uh, like, it often starts in our thoughts. The Bible teaches us that we have uh, a thought life that is less than holy. And I hope you guys can pick this up on the cameras. But this is what goes on sometimes with our thought life. We do things and we say things that are, uh, they're not honoring to God. You know, we get ourselves into all sorts of difficulties and we basically make a mess of stuff, don't we? We, we, we get covered by sin. You know, this is, a, this is a great illustration of sin, isn't it? Uh, we kind of want to live a good life, but deep in our heart, what we know, what we've been through, what we've permitted or what we've given into temptation with is kind of, that's what it looks like. 
And we kind of know that. And, you know, sometimes we come to church and we're feeling like that, aren't we? And we're like, oh, man, hope nobody sees. And then we kind of get around communion and we say sorry. And, and we know that Jesus fixes that. But I think it's really helpful for us to sometimes see holiness in action. And that's why I've kind of prepared this demonstration today. Because over here, this represents self. And this, this, might, this, this, this jar here represents our attempts to clean ourselves up. You know, we might try and go and get peace and comfort from, I don't know, maybe eating, uh, meditation, sport, that raise at work, you know, that, that position, the corner office, the new promotion, whatever it might be, we're trying to go and get something that will clean us up on the inside. But what happens is that that never really happens. We never really get cleaned up on the inside because there is only one person able to clean us up on the inside. But nevertheless, we still go ahead and try and kind of sort that out. And we do whatever it is we do to try and clean ourselves up. And so we kind of give ourselves a good rinse in whatever it is we think is going to be the solution to that problem. And we kind of go, oh, I hope that that works. And then as we kind of reflect, we're like, oh, man. Oh, oh. that's even worse. I mean, it's kind of spread, hasn't it? And it's still there. That's hardly clean. Really, we need a solution for our sin. We need someone who could come along and clean that up. Well, the person who teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer is that person. He is that person himself. It's Jesus. And so when we take our stuff to Jesus, and we clean up by giving it to Jesus, and we make ourselves right before him, because he is our righteousness from heaven, he will clean us up. If we are immersed in the person of Jesus, he will sort us out and make us clean and white and pure again. Amen? The reason I want to bring you that illustration is because I think you need to see holiness. You actually need to see it. If you don't see it, you don't quite, un- you don't quite grasp it. And for those of you listening, I've just kind of put a, a hanky which has got some iodine dye in a jar of water and tried to clean it up, and of course it doesn't work. And then what I put in, then I put it into some photographic developer solution. And of course, that's the kind of chemical that takes diadine away straight away, and it completely cleans it up. But it's an excellent illustration of the holiness of Jesus in action. Um, now, I want you to turn in, with your, in your Bibles and on your devices to Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to look at a passage in the Bible in which the holiness of God is incredibly strong. Um, now, just as we're turning there, and as you get ready there, uh, and you'll see that also in your YouVersion uh, event uh, that, that's available. You can click on that event from underneath the YouTube description, and hopefully you guys on the live stream have been able to access that. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what holiness means. What is this thing that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit have that, in, that kind of cleans everything around it? That, 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 that is so, so, so holy. What is holiness? In truth, it's one of the hardest things to teach on and explain because it's the thing that we don't share with God naturally. We don't share holiness with God pretty much at all, actually. Now, we share lots and lots of other attributes with God. Uh, we have creativity. Um, we can be merciful. We can show grace sometimes. We can be compassionate. We definitely know how to love. Um, we can be faithful. And all of those capacities and, and abilities are things that God has, and we share them with him. But holiness is something we don't particularly have. 
In fact, we wrestle with much more the other thing. We, we have self. We have sin. We have a struggle on the inside of us that goes right from the, right from the very beginning. In fact, the Pharisees in the Bible believed that you could sin in the womb. Now, <laughs> how you could do that, I don't know. But what they were trying to say was that we have sin inside us right from the very beginning. And we fight it, and we know it's there, and it, 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 we are always battling against sin. And even when you become a follower of Jesus, and you have the regular capacity to be able to be cleaned by Jesus by going to him, you're still on your toes about fighting sin. And so it's the thing, our nature is kind of opposed to God's in, God, in, in the capacity that God has of being a holy person. So it's worth understanding what holiness means. Um, Well, first of all, holy means to be completely without sin, completely pure, completely faultless. You saw how that handkerchief stained with the iodine got cleaned up by the developer solution, and that's now clean again because it got exposed to the holiness of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is like our developer solution. I mean, that is actually called developer solution for photographs, but he is like the person who develops us, and he is the person who is our solution in order to clean us up. So holiness means to be completely without sin, completely pure and completely faultless. Secondly, holy means fully set apart, separate and distinct from everyone and everything else. And so if you can imagine, perhaps reality is over here. There's a very true and biblical sense in which God is over here. And he is very other. He's very separate. He's very different. He is very, very separated from us. Holiness means to be be set apart. Completely separated from anything that might have even the slightest hint of imperfection or sinfulness or wrongfulness in it. He is completely set apart. Uh, So holy means to be uh, completely without sin and pure and faultless. It means to be set apart, uh, and that puts God on a completely different plane to us. And thirdly, holy also means completely whole, completely unbroken, um, completely uh, all there. Nothing is missing. And the reason I opened with the illustration of the trampoline is that if you got round the trampoline of your spirituality and you did all the springs correctly, then in a sense... And that that was a spiritual idea. There's a sense in which God is pulling you into shape. His holiness is is something that's very complete. There's nothing missing. There's nothing trailing on the grass. If you're a very holy person, you've attended to every single spiritual spring. And you've got those intention. And God is pulling you into the wholeness that he wants for your life. And so in teaching us the Lord's Prayer, and as we speak to God as our Father in the Lord's Prayer... We need to remember he is also an extremely holy person, a very holy person. It's a word that's linked with the word whole itself to mean complete, and it's also linked with the word holistic, which when we use the word holistic, we we kind of mean like an all-encompassing solution, don't we? Uh, Something that's uh, all there, nothing missing. Here's a bit of a paradox for us, a paradox being a mystery of two opposing possibilities, both true at the same time. The very day that you chose to follow Jesus, you became completely holy before God. Sixty years after choosing to follow Jesus, you are still becoming holy before God in Jesus. And both are true at the same time. So if God takes, if you became a Christian and he took you three days later, you would be acceptable to him in heaven because you've received Jesus by faith. And you have enough holiness to pass muster. You are acceptable to God because of Jesus. 
But if you continue to then live your life and work out what it means to have salvation, and it says in the Bible, working out your, your salvation in fear and trembling, doesn't it? You would still be being made holy in that journey. And both are true at the same time. And that's what's called a paradox. When two things that look as if they're completely opposite ends of a seesaw are both true at the same time, that's kind of like impossible, and yet that's a supernatural reality of God. We get the righteousness of Jesus given to us because of our acceptance of him by faith. And yet we need to work it out in our lives at the same time. So let's read from Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the, the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. There are only two times in the Bible when someone is drawn into the presence of God in a vision similar to this. There is this one here in Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament. And also in Revelation chapter 4, uh, the disciple John has a similar vision of God in heaven. And in both these uh, visions of heaven, there are angelic beings and living creatures around God's throne who are crying out to God, holy, holy, holy. We're not sure exactly what the seraphim of Isaiah may have looked like other than they had six wings. They are so reverent, however, and filled with awe at being near God that they cover themselves as much as they can. They cover their faces and they cover their feet with their wings, uh, with, with four of their wings, and they fly with the other two. It's almost as though the seraphim themselves, even though they are in heaven already, are so aware of their unworthiness compared with God that they want to be deferential around him and to worship him. Did you notice in the description of the temple that God is so immense that just the hem of his robe fills the temple? Like, where's the rest of his robe? Where's, the, where's God himself? If just the hem of his robe fills the temple, where is God himself? God is enormous and huge and majestic, and this picture doesn't... It, like when I first read Isaiah 6, the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. I, I had a strong sense of the holiness of God, and I felt convicted. I felt compelled. I felt stretched by who God was, and I felt challenged by his presence. It says his glory fills the whole earth. Here's what I want us all to grasp this morning, that when God's holiness draws close to people, it pulls people into their own personal wholeness. In the spiritual, just like I was trying to explain with the trampoline, when we draw close to a person who is so whole, like God is, 
An inevitable outcome and consequence of that is that we are made whole. It, it kind of is like a dynamic you can't resist. A genuine encounter with a holy God is going to try to make you, it's going to make you whole. It's going to influence you to be whole. Let me give you three ways that you can think about the holiness of God from Isaiah 6. Reaching up, reaching in, reaching out. Reaching up, reaching in, reaching out. These are the things, these are the things that are the dynamic that pull us into wholeness after exposure with ho- the holiness of God. Do you, do you get that we're being pulled by holiness? Holiness is something that's irresistible. It's a force and a characteristic of God. It's intrinsic to who he is. It's part of his nature. And if you dare to get close to it, it will change you. And it will change you for the better. And it's terrifying at the same time. I'm not going to lie to you. I found this message really hard to prepare for because I was so over-reverential about it and so concerned to ensure that I did it justice that I kind of almost kind of felt like I couldn't. Chloe will tell you, she's had to pray for me quite a lot (laughs) to get to a place where I can just dare to preach this message. And yet what happens with Isaiah is he comes up against God and he's got loads of things to say. And I kind of thought, okay, if Isaiah can say some things, then I need to say some things because I'm a pastor and you've called me to do that, God. But let me tell you, I I had a struggle with it because the reverence and the awe that I feel off this passage is very, very strong. I don't feel worthy to speak this passage today, if I'm dead honest. And it's not because I've got some big sin things going on, not at all. I just feel like I'm drawing close to something that is holy. Really, really holy. And it scares me to death. Now, Isaiah has an incredible reaching up experience. It's, it's, he, this is a life-changing experience for Isaiah. This will be a reference point for him looking back on his life. And you know when you have those encounters, it's very hard then to know how to follow that. How can I make that applicable to us? How can I, how can I make holiness something that I can access in a, in a meaningful way? Well, let me give you a little bit of an illustration. Um, something that happened on Friday, or something that happened on Fridays, is that um, normally we kind of release our boys, Adam and Simon, who are our two youngest lads, to kind of make their own way to school. But because I have a Friday off, and Chloe has the Friday off. We take our weekend Friday and Saturday. Um, and so sometimes on a Friday, if we're feeling particularly charitable, and it's particularly icy, and it's horribly cold, we might say to one of our lads, hey, do you want to lift into school? Okay, we just do that. And so on, on Friday, it was icy and really cold. And um, I kind of thought, okay, Adam, I'm going to give you a lift into school. So I dropped him in at school, and it's quite early. And I don't know, about, I don't know if you've noticed that this week, it's been incredibly cold, but very stunning sunrises and sunlight. Yeah, have you noticed that and, and seen it? I mean, the air is very cold, but the, the sunlight has been very beautiful, hasn't it, in the mornings, rising up over the city. And I was driving, I went back via Morrison's and, and got something there, and then I came back out and I was driving home. And as I was driving home, in my rearview mirror, I saw the sun appear between the buildings, just momentarily, like kind of sliding across the back of the car. And it really touched me in my spirit. I was like, whoa, that is amazing. How beautiful is that? Uh, and, and actually, the angle on the car rearview mirror, it, there was a little tiny prism that went sort of shooting across the back of the car like that. You know, just w- like a kind of rainbow colors. Just a moment, just li- literally a split second. And as I got home, I thought, 
do you know what? It'd be great to just pop down to the reservoir because we live just near the Edgebaston Reservoir and I could see through the houses as I was driving home that, that, that there was this kind of mist rising off the reservoir water and this sun was rising. And I thought, let's go down there and, 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 and kind of have a look around. And so I just thought, I spent 10, 15 minutes with my iPhone taking some photographs in black and white, just kind of like a, you know, a scenic thing. Uh, Adam, just bung those up on the, on the picture for us, would you mind? And I just thought... I'm going, to take a, I'm going to just look at the light properly. I'm going to take a moment to actually enjoy this thing that God says, you know, in um, the Isaiah reports. It's, uh, yeah, it's what, it's what the seraphim are saying to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. And there's a moment where I'm able to just go and spend some time next to this reservoir in the dead of winter with this kind of mist rising off the water and this beautiful sunlight coming over the city where I get a sense of the glory of God, that he fills the whole earth with his presence. And I'm not, I'm not kind of trying to show you my photographs and go, oh, look what a great photographer I am. That's not it at all. It, really, it's not. I'm just trying to show you a response to something of the glory of God in, in my life. And so what I want to say to us is that holiness is something that, yes, there are landmark moments for us, absolutely, and a holiness encounter will absolutely change your life forever. But when you're living your life after that, I want to encourage you to permit, through the softness of your heart and the openness of your spirit, to allow moments of holiness and the glory of God to step into, you, into your spirit. Allow them, encourage them, look for them, be open to them. Be open to moments of holiness and moments of the grandeur of God stepping into your life. Because they're beautiful and they're precious. That's something of the sense of reaching up. You know, Isaiah's vision of God that he gets is an upward one, isn't it? It lifts us up to another level. It lifts him up to another level. It says at the beginning, I saw that the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. He's looking upwards. The holiness of God comes from above because he is above and it lifts us up. And one of the things that holiness does to us is it takes our gaze, our morals, our view of ourselves, our thought life, our speech, our behaviors, and we become galvanized in response to the holiness of God to lift all of them up as a response to his person. Secondly, reaching in. So we've got reaching up, reaching in. What is Isaiah's first reaction to his encounter with the Lord? He says this, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah immediately becomes very convicted about his own personal sin. The second transformation created in people by the holiness of God is inward. It's on the inside. When we sense we're around holiness, one of our responses is to worship who he is. Another response is to go, oh my goodness, what have I got going on in here? Let's just be honest. That is, that is a genuine hallmark response to the holiness of God being present. We cannot help but look inwards and confess that what is there is lacking when we are up against holiness. It says at the beginning of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because they look inside and they realize just how far short of the glory of God that they have fallen. 
And then they go, yay, Jesus, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You're my way out of this. You're my holiness. You're the person that can come and sort this. You're the person that can come and clean me up. Now, I want you to understand that this conviction, this inner sense of falling short, is very specific. And when it happens to us, it targets a, it targets a particular place. It will identify something that you need to work on and address. Notice that it's, uh, Isaiah is convicted of being a man of unclean lips. There is something he has to work on in what he says, in his speech. His speech is not holy. It's not honoring to God. And what God's wanting to do is to, to fix that so that then Isaiah can be his mouthpiece and say pure things and say good things. And he then goes on to do that hugely in his life. He becomes probably the foremost prophet of the Old Testament. So the conviction of God, the conviction we feel around holiness is often going to be specific. It will be, Nick, you need to clean this up. Nick, you need to address that. Pastor Nick, you need to fix this. Whatever it might be, it'll be a specific thing that will come along from God. Now, that's totally different from what the enemy does who tries to assassinate your character, your whole being. He tries to take all of you out. He calls into question your identity. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What do you mean, if I'm the son of God? Yeah, of course I'm the son of God. Before Abraham was, I am. Get out of my face, Satan. It, he, he basically tries to attack our character. God's conviction of sin is specific and targeted around a behavior or a pattern. Whereas the enemy will try and take us out. Uh, I, I think one is conviction and the other is contempt. The holiness of God will convict you. The contempt of the enemy will try and take you out as a person. So the first transformation by the holiness of God is something that causes us to reach up. It's upward. The second transformation is caused by God's holiness is something that reaches onto the inside of us. And it's a conviction. It's a, it's a you need to fix this. And all honest reflection around God's holiness has to recognize that there's something that we're going to have to go away and fix and resolve. In fact, I'd go so far as to say there's quite a few of us sitting here today feeling a little uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable preparing this message. If you're feeling uncomfortable, do you know what? That's a good thing. Because God's Spirit is convicting you of some stuff on the inside. And I don't know what that is, but you might need to fix that. But God will give you the help to fix that. Because you have put your life in Jesus' hands. And Jesus will take you day by day through to a fix. He will. The last one. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Thank you, Kevin. The last one is reaching out. So in the illustration of the trampoline being pulled in all directions to get taught and to get healthy and bouncy before God and, and have a decent life and an abundant life with him, he pulls us into shape through his holiness. It's reaching up, it's reaching in, but it's also reaching out to others. A genuine encounter with the holiness of God will change how we interact with other people. It will change how we relate to other people, how we see other people. Um, Isaiah goes on to become, from a man of unclean lips, he goes on to become probably the foremost prophet of the Old Testament, most widely quoted in the New Testament. He says incredible things about God and on God's behalf to the people of Israel. And a lot of them don't listen, and they still get carted off to captivity in Babylon, but he still says what he's got to say, and he does it really, really well. Exposure to the holiness of God will change how you relate to other people. 
It will pull you into shape, and then therefore it will have an impact on other people. It will bless them. Isaiah has an incredible structure to it. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it has 66 chapters in it. And the Bible has 66 books. And the first, uh, the first half of Isaiah, if you like, the, the, there's two distinct halves to Isaiah, 39 chapters and then 27 chapters to make a second half. And the Old Testament has 39 books and the New Testament has 27 books. Now bear in mind, this was a man who got convicted of his unclean lips and he's now writing prophetically and producing something that's looking a bit like a Bible in miniature. The, first message of, uh, the message of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah summarizes the message of the Old Testament. The message of the final 27 books of Isaiah from chapters 40 to 66 summarizes the message of the New Testament. Isaiah 40 begins the beginning, if you like, of the New Testament half of Isaiah. It begins with the voice of, the, of one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And who does that remind us of? That remind us, reminds us of John the Baptist, doesn't it? The second half of Isaiah that corresponds to the New Testament then goes on. Get this, it goes on to talk about a servant of the Lord who is anointed with the Holy Spirit, who dies for the sins of the people, but then who is raised and exalted after his death. Does that remind you of anyone at all? It then moves on to, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it concludes with God saying, I am making all things new. This is Isaiah. I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. And it even mentions another place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies, which is a direct echo before it happens of what John writes in Revelation from his vision. If you wanted to compress the whole Bible into one book, you'd need to look no further than the book of Isaiah because of his incredible structure that was given to him by God. And it gets even better. The, first, the 27 chapters of Isaiah 40, 66, uh, 40 to 66 which corresponds to the New Testament, divide down into three sections of nine chapters each. Uh, chapters 40 to 48 have the theme of comforting God's people. Chapters 49 to 57, the theme is the servant of the Lord who dies and rises again. Chapters 58 to 66 are about future glory. And then each of those sections of nine chapters break down into three lots of three. And if you go right to the fulcrum point of the final 27 chapters of Isaiah, right to the middle... The middle chapter and the middle verse, you have Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says this. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. Right in the middle, if you took the last 27 chapters of Isaiah as a seesaw, right in the middle of that seesaw, you have that verse which describes what Jesus does for us. That's a reaching out on an epic scale, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 750 years before Jesus comes along. How does that happen? Atheists, come and tell me how that gets organized, because I'm going to be really listening to you on that one, because it can't be done. Do you know what? They did, they did some digging in the, in, in, the, in the Middle East, in Israel, around an area called Qumran, and they found a load of scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of them? They did an analysis of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have got several copies, well, more than several, loads of copies of Isaiah, 
And, and they're dated to kind of 250 bef- years before Jesus. And the accuracy of all of the content is about 99.9%. And any of the differences are just kind of like little bits that can be explained away easily and nothing doctrinal and nothing major. That tells me that God's hand was on Isaiah. God's hand is on the Bible. How can you write a book prophetically just listening to God where you are at and then for that to be kind of representative of everything else in the Bible? That's just an absolute miracle. What I'm saying to you is if you bump up against the holiness of God, he will do incredible things in your life that you've got no idea how it's going to play out that are beautiful. They're beautiful things. God's holiness produces beauty in us. BCC, would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing one more time, and then we're going to respond to the holiness of God today.